In September the 3rd, 1860, Dickens, a few months after his 48th birthday, made a great bonfire in the field behind his home, Gads Hill Place, near Rochester in Kent, of what he described as the accumulated letters and papers of 20 years. He was prompted to do so by what he saw as the misuse of famous people's private correspondence after their death. Three of his children carried out basket after basket of correspondence to feed the flames, and he resisted his daughter Kate's pleas to save even a few letters from the fire, telling her that we should always remember that letters are ephemeral. Describing the event in a letter to W.H. Wills, the sub-editor of his weekly journal All Year Round, Dickens made a characteristic allusion to his beloved Arabian Nights. The bonfire, he wrote, sent up a smoke like the genie when he got out of the casket on the seashore. And as it was an exquisite day when I began and rained very heavily when I finished, I suspect my correspondence of having overcast the face of the heavens. Whatever effect it might have had upon the Kentish weather that day, this bonfire, the first of several such, can certainly be seen as emblematic of the new epoch in Dickens's life that had begun two years earlier. Following the tumultuous events in both his personal and professional life that took place during 1858-59, Dickens's last 11 years were notable for new departures in almost every respect. He no longer lived in London, that great and dark nourisher of his supreme literary genius, but at Gadshill House in the Kentish countryside of his happy early childhood. Nor did he any longer live with Catherine, his wife of more than 20 years, who had borne him 10 children, supported him in his energetic social life in France and Italy as well as in London, and who had been the clearly much appreciated hostess of many a grand dinner party. She'd also been at his side during his triumphant but exceedingly gruelling American tour of 1842. Their separation, 16 years later, had been instituted by Dickens alone, and he never saw her again. Their eldest son, 21-year-old Charlie, then working for Baring's Bank, went to live with his mother, while their two daughters and five younger sons continued living with their father. Dickens's household was now managed jointly by his 31-year-old sister-in-law, Georgina Hogarth, who chose to stay with him in defiance of her family, and by his devoted elder daughter, Mamie, aged 20, who never married. Mamie is the one uh, uh, kneeling in front, and Georgina is seated. His younger daughter, Katie, a talented artist, married in 1860, mainly, it seems, to get away from home, though she remained very close to her father. As to Dickens's younger sons, trying to get them settled in life, in the armed forces or in the colonies, was to prove, with one exception, a major concern during his last decade. The exception was his sixth son, Henry Fielding Dickens, who went to Cambridge and subsequently had a successful career in the law, eventually achieving a knighthood. <clears throat> Dickens then had abundant family responsibilities, but he also had a second private life, a secret one, involving what the scandal-mongering old Lady Tippins in Our Mutual Friend, his last completed novel, 
slyly refers to as two establishments. Publicly, he was Mr. Dickens of Gad's Hill, the hugely famous and hugely popular writer, the joyous celebrator of hearth and home and a doughty crusader for greater social justice. Secretly, he was Mr. Tringham, the lover of a young actress called Ellen Turnham and a sort of fairy godfather to her family as a whole. This family consisted of Ellen's widowed mother, herself an actress, and her two older sisters, Fanny and Mariah. Over the previous decade, Dickens had written a series of masterpieces, From Dombey and Son to Little Dorrit, which all have among their leading themes the dangers, frustrations and humiliations experienced by women in the world of mid-Victorian England. With A Tale of Two Cities, he inaugurates an equally great new series. Now, however, they're focused on male protagonists, each of whom nourishes an intense passion for a woman who, for one reason or another, he can never hope to possess. The first two novels in this series, A Tale of Two Cities and Great Expectations, were initially serialised in his new weekly journal, All the Year Round. This publication itself was also a new departure, being a rather different animal from its immediate predecessor, Household Words. More space and prominence was given to the serialisation of original fiction, for example. Among contributing writers was Wilkie Collins, with whom Dickens developed a close personal friendship during the last ten years of his life, enjoying trips together en garçon to enjoy the festive diablerie, as he called it, of Paris. Both Collins's The Woman in White and his The Moonstone first appeared in weekly instalments in the new journal. Another difference from Household Words was that the articles Dickens himself wrote for All the Year Round were not just miscellaneous in nature like those he contributed to Household Words. In All the Year Round, they formed two successive series, both being written in the first person and published under the general titles The Uncommercial Traveller and New Uncommercial Samples. In them, the reader was often encouraged to think that Dickens was writing autobiographically, this contributed in no small measure to the deepening of that special relationship between him and his readers, which he described as personally affectionate and like no other man's. It was a relationship that would reach its highest point during the last ten years of his life. One thing that strengthened it tremendously was Dickens's embarking in 1858 on a new career as public reader of his own work. This was a hugely demanding and a hugely successful enterprise that brought him face to face with tens of thousands of his devoted readers, both throughout the United Kingdom and in the northeastern United States. At the same time, he continued to accept many of the invitations that regularly poured in on him, asking him to speak at fundraising charity dinners. Nearly half of all such speeches were, in fact, made during the last 12 years of his life. They included a splendid one given at an anniversary dinner of the Newspaper Press Fund in 1865, in which he recalled his youthful days as a parliamentary reporter. I have worn my knees by writing on them on the old back row of the old House of Commons, 
And I've worn my feet by standing to write in a preposterous pen in the old House of Lords, where we used to be huddled together like so many sheep kept in waiting, say, until the woolsack might want restuffing. With regard to his career as a novelist, I noted many years ago in my book Dickens and Women that less than one-third of all the named characters in his first six novels were female, while in the middle five books, from Dombey and Son to Little Dorrit, this figure rose to just under half. In the four novels of his last 11 years, however, A Tale of Two Cities, Great Expectations, Our Mutual Friend, and The Unfinished Mystery of Edwin Drood, the proportion of women characters drops again to just over a third. Also, each one of these last four novels features a leading male character, in two cases the actual hero of the book, who falls passionately in love with a woman whom, for one reason or another, he cannot have. That one of these novels, Great Expectations, should end with an abrupt and arguably highly implausible reversal of this situation is owing, as is well known, to Dickens's last-minute acceptance of the advice of his revered friend and hugely successful fellow novelist, Edward Bulwer-Lytton, the author of Last Days of Pompeii and many a shelf full of other books. We might also include here, along with the four novels, a haunting first-person narrative, George Silverman's explanation, for which the Atlantic Monthly paid Dickens the then staggering amount of a thousand pounds in 1867. In this story, Silverman's love for the beautiful young upper-class girl he's tutoring is even more painful than hopeless love would be, in that he comes to realise that his love is reciprocated. He's prevented from acting on this, however, by a paralysing fear of being condemned by her haughty mother as a mercenary wretch. This was a fear which stemmed from his having been so-called by his own harridan of a mother in his traumatising childhood in the cellar of a Preston slum. In the first of Dickens's last four novels, A Tale of Two Cities, <clears throat> serialised in All the Year Round, from 30th of April to the 26th of November, 1859, he, as has been much noted, actually models the physical appearance of the heroine, Lucy Manette, at least in part on that of Ellen Ternan. Here is his description of Lucy, as seen by an older male character. A short, slight, pretty figure, a quantity of golden hair, a pair of blue eyes that met his own with an inquiring look, and a forehead with a singular capacity, remembering how young and smooth it was, of lifting and knitting itself into an expression that was not quite one of perplexity or wonder or alarm or merely of bright fixed attention, though it included all the four expressions. Ellen had had a minor role in some fundraising for charity theatricals that Dickens had organised the previous year. The first name of the character she played was Lucy, hence, no doubt, the name of the heroine of A Tale of Two Cities. Her mother, a leading actress of the day and one of her older sisters, Mariah, had played major roles in the same theatrical enterprise. The play, The Frozen Deep, was written jointly by Dickens and Wilkie Collins and is what we should now call an out-and-out -out melodrama. The hero, Richard Wardour, played by Dickens, 
sacrifices his own life to save that of his younger friend and fellow Arctic explorer, Frank Aldersley, who was played by Wilkie Collins. He does so because he knows that his beloved Clara, played by Mariah, cannot return his love because she loves Frank. In his preface to A Tale of Two Cities, Dickens notes that the story had had complete possession of him. He writes, I have so far verified what is done and suffered in these pages as that I have certainly done and suffered it all myself. This is one of the most intensely personal statements to be found in any of Dickens's prefaces and may perhaps have emanated from some fantasy he nourished about sacrificing his love for Ellen by promoting another younger lover in his place. In the novel, the brilliantly gifted but dissolute hero, Sidney Carton, who passionately but hopelessly loves Lucy Manette, sacrifices his life to save that of the man she loves, Charles Darnay. Charles Dickens is here, consciously or unconsciously, playing the initials game, as he had done once before in reversing his initials when naming David Copperfield. In that case, he claimed he'd not realised what he'd done until it was pointed out to him by his friend and later biographer, John Forster. The hero of his next novel, Pip in Great Expectations, is, from his childhood, smitten with intense love for Estella, the beautiful ward of blighted Miss Havisham. Her weird upbringing, trained to break men's hearts, has rendered her incapable of loving. Pip loves her, he tells us, against reason, against promise, against peace, against hope, against happiness, against all discouragement that could be. As I've already noted, Dickens's intention was that the novel should end with Pip still hopelessly yearning for her. But it was altered uh, on the advice of his highly respected and dear friend, fellow novelist, uh, Edward Bulwer-Lytton. In the last two novels, Our Mutual Friend and The Unfinished Mystery of Edwin Drood, the hopeless lover figure is no longer the actual hero, however. In Our Mutual Friend, it is a powerfully imagined secondary character, the fiercely self-repressed schoolmaster, Bradley Headstone, who is driven to attempt the murder of his favoured rival. In The Mystery of Edwin Drood, Edwin's uncle, the opium-addicted cathedral choirmaster, John Jasper, loves his nephew's fiancée with an overwhelming passion. But she, however, shrinks from him in terror. Of course, I'm not suggesting a crude parallel between life and fiction here. It seems pretty clear from all the evidence gathered and sifted by scholars during the past half century that Dickens's passion for Ellen did not go forever unrequited. He and she would seem to have become lovers in May 1858, not long after Dickens's legal separation from Catherine, which he claimed was by mutual agreement. Such evidence as there is suggests that four years later, Ellen bore Dickens a child who was born in France, most probably in the metropolitan anonymity of Paris. This evidence also suggests that the child lived only a short time. This was reported later by Dickens's younger daughter, Katie, to her close friend Gladys Storey, who published it in her 1939 bombshell of a book, Dickens and Daughter, which appeared 10 years after Katie's death. 
Documentary proof of Katie's statement is unlikely ever to be discovered if the birth did indeed take place in Paris, since all municipal records were destroyed during the Commune of 1870. What I am concerned to suggest here is that Dickens's characteristically intense emotional experience during the earlier stages of his passion for Ellen and before they became lovers fed into his creation both of the character of Sidney Carton, the self-sacrificing hero of A Tale of Two Cities, and that of Pip, the hero narrator of Great Expectations. The concept of this figure undergoes a sinister development in the last two novels of Dickens's final decade, two leading male characters, both outwardly highly respectable, are driven to murder as a result of their burning but unrequited passion for a younger woman. As regards Dickens's journalism, I've already mentioned that the reader of the Uncommercial Traveller essays was encouraged to read the Traveller's biographical disclosures as straight autobiography on Dickens's part. His contributions to Household Words, collected in volume form in 1858 under the uninspiring title of Reprinted Pieces, had been published in the journal without any byline indicating they were all from the same pen. They were mainly of an investigative, journalistic or socio-political and satirical nature. Only one or two of them contain what purport to be, and in one case at least certainly are, personal reminiscences of Dickens's own early years. It was not until after he'd fallen in love with Ellen in the summer of 1857 that certain of his contributions, written jointly with his younger friend and fellow novelist Wilkie Collins, became avowedly autobiographical. These were a series of travel pieces published under the title The Lazy Tour of Two Idle Apprentices. They give a lightly fictionalised account of the two writers' tour in Cumberland, ending up at Doncaster, where, as it happened, Ellen and her mother were engaged for races week by the local theatre. This had, in fact, been the private raison d'etre for the whole expedition. And in the last instalment of the series, Dickens, who took Ellen and her mother to see the St. Ledger run, goes into injudicious raptures about the golden-haired wearer of a pair of little lilac gloves and a winning little bonnet whom he saw at the racecourse. The two series of articles that Dickens wrote for his new weekly journal All the Year Round and published under The Uncommercial Traveller were immediately identifiable as being from his pen in a way that his miscellaneous contributions to household words had generally not been. These Traveller articles also mark something of a step change in Dickens' relationship with his public. Most notably, he sets about constructing in them a comfortably middle-class version of his childhood, in contrast to his actual childhood, dominated as it had been by his father's financial recklessness and his chequered schooling. The uncommercial writes of having had a boarding school education, for example, with fond parents sending him hampers of goodies to share with his chums. The sadistic nursemaid described in another article as having terrified the uncommercial in his infancy with tales of murder and cannibalism would seem likewise to have been a fictitious creation. If the uncommercial traveller articles helped 
to strengthen Dickens's close relationship with his readers, how much more so did his new career as a public reader of his own works. He embarked on this career in 1858, and it featured very largely in his life during the last decade. It brought him face to face with his adoring readers throughout most of the British Isles, as well as in the northeastern United States, which he toured in the winter of 1867 to 68, with New Yorkers famously queuing all night in freezing conditions to get tickets. The Leeds Mercury commented in 1869, not only in this country, but in America, he has strengthened the relations which exist between himself and his readers by creating fresh bonds of sympathy with them. In the same year, a Dublin reporter wrote, his readings were not looked on as a performance, but as a friendly meeting longed for by people to whom he had been kind. He also created an intoxicating new experience for himself, surpassing even that which he'd enjoyed in his 30s as a brilliantly talented amateur actor. At that time, he'd written, there is nothing in the world equal to seeing the house rise at you, one sea of delightful faces, one hurrah of applause. The obvious choice for the first of his stories to adapt for public reading purposes was that perennial favourite, A Christmas Carol, probably the best loved of all his writings. And this remained the reading that he most frequently performed. To complete the evening's programme, he most often paired the carol reading with that of the hilarious trial scene from Pickwick Papers, in which the rascally lawyers, Dodson and Fogg, persuade innocent Mr Pickwick's widowed landlady to bring an action against him for breach of promise of marriage. Altogether, during the last 12 years of his life, Dickens built up a repertoire of 16 readings derived from the novels and from some of the stories written specially for the hugely popular Christmas numbers of both his weekly journals. A particular favourite with his audiences, besides the carol and the Pickwick trial scene, was a longer reading in six chapters derived from David Copperfield. This skillfully combines the comedy of the impecunious but ever optimistic Micawbers and that of David and Dora's chaotic housekeeping with the drama and pathos of little Emily's seduction by Steerforth, David's idolised friend with feet of clay. This reading culminates in the great storm scene of chapter 55, a chapter that Tolstoy considered to be the finest thing in the whole of world literature. In it, there perish both Steerforth and Ham Peggotty, the man whose happiness Steerforth has destroyed and who now loses his own life in a desperate attempt to save that of his betrayer. Dickens's official private life was, as I've indicated earlier, that of the squire of Gad's Hill, the country house near Rochester, that he'd admired as a child on walks with his father. He also valued it for its literary associations, as it is the setting, Gad's Hill is the setting, for one of Shakespeare's greatest comic scenes, Falstaff's attempted robbery of the Canterbury Pilgrims in Henry IV, Part I. Once he became the actual owner of this house, Dickens commissioned an illuminated scroll 
commemorating its association with Shakespeare and had it hung suitably framed in the entrance hall. It can be seen today in the Charles Dickens Museum. Dickens had bought the house in 1856, two years before the great public scandal of his separation from his wife. After Catherine's exile from the family home in the spring of 1858, Dickens continued to live there for the last 12 years of his life, still very much a family man. He took the greatest pleasure in making continual improvements, as he called them, to the property. Improvements culminating in the addition of a conservatory in which he delighted to hang Chinese lanterns. At Gads Hill, Dickens entertained many friends as house guests with festive dinners, usually followed by parlour games, charades being a special favourite, and took strenuous long walks in the neighbourhood. He was always accompanied by his beloved dogs, notably by a devoted St Bernard named Linda and a splendid mastiff named Turk, the latter seen with him here in a very famous photograph. Georgina was one of the very few of his walking companions who could keep pace with Dickens. It was noted that whenever he came to rising ground, he increased his pace. Gads Hill Place was the setting for the great family Dickens Christmas festivals involving charades and other parlour games. In one year, the seasonal festivities extended beyond the house itself and its inmates. In the field behind it, Dickens organised some elaborate Boxing Day sports, with himself acting as judge, referee and presenter of cash prizes provided by himself. A great crowd, between two and 3,000 people, showed up. And yet, as a result of what one of his house guests described as Dickens's magical kind of influence, there was no trouble or disturbance of any kind at any point during the day. Earlier in the year, a much wider public had been introduced to Dickens at home at Gads Hill with Georgina, his daughters and visiting friends by a series of carefully posed photographs taken by a professional photographer, Robert Hindry Mason. One shows Dickens posed reading to his daughters, Katie, standing, and Mamie. And another shows him grouped with Katie, Mamie, Georgina, Wilkie Collins and other guests in the front, front porch at Gads Hill. Dickens owned a piece of land called the Shrubbery on the other side of the main road from Gads Hill House. It was here that he caused to be erected the Swiss chalet sent to him by his much-admired friend, the leading French actor, Charles Fechter, on Christmas Eve 1864. It had arrived in the form of its 94 component parts and Dickens had to get help in erecting it from the stage carpenter at the Lyceum Theatre. A tunnel, which is still there, was dug under the main road so that Dickens could reach the chalet safely. It became his workplace, or to borrow a phrase from W.H. Auden, his cave of making. It was here that on the morning of the day he died, the 9th of June, 1870, he wrote the sixth monthly number, there were intended to be 12 in all, of his last novel, The Mystery of Edwin Drood. It's interesting to note, I think, that when Mason came to Gads Hill to take his photographs, 
Dickens did not pose for any of them in front of or standing on the veranda of the chalet. It was evidently for him a very private space. So much for Dickens's official private life during his last decade. As regards his relationship with Ellen Ternan, it was not until nearly 60 years after his death that the public began to have any knowledge of the doubly private private life he'd lived with his darling girl for his last 12 years. It seems most probable that he had helped the two older Ternan sisters to purchase a long lease of a four-storey house in Houghton Place near London's Mornington Crescent, a lease which was then transferred to Ellen on her 21st birthday in March 1860. She lived there with her mother until 1865, and it was during that time that she would have crossed to France to bear him that putative short-lived child I mentioned earlier. In June 1865, Dickens's relationship with Ellen came near to being publicly exposed when they were both involved, together with Ellen's mother, in a terrible railway accident. All three were travelling back from London, from, to London from France by the so-called tidal train from Dover when it derailed as it was crossing a bridge over the small river at Staplehurst in Kent. Ten people died and many more were seriously wounded. Somehow or other, Dickens managed to extricate himself and his two companions from the wreckage of their carriage, of which they had been the sole occupants, and which had just missed crashing down into the river and now hung precariously over it. Remarkably, Dickens seems to have been able to get Ellen and her mother clear away from the terrible scene before the arrival of rescue workers and journalists. He then set about rendering what assistance he could mainly, it seems, in the form of brandy, to the wounded and dying, as depicted in the Penny Illustrated paper for the 24th of June. No imagination, he wrote to his close friend, Thomas Mitten, can conceive the ruin of the carriages or the extraordinary weights under which people were lying or the complications into which they were twisted up among iron and wood and mud and water. At some point, he risked his life by climbing back into the wreckage to retrieve the manuscript of the latest, and as yet unpublished, monthly number of Our Mutual Friend, which he was in the process of writing. He referred to this hazardous exploit in a postscript to the novel when it was published in book form. I can never be much nearer parting company with my readers forever than I was then, until there shall be written against my name the two words with which I have this day closed this book, The End. The following year, 1866, was Mrs. Ternan's last as a working actress. She and Ellen moved to a cottage in what was then the little market town of Slough. The rent was paid by Dickens under the assumed name of Tringham. He himself rented another cottage a short distance away, also under the name of Tringham, and his pocket diary for 1867 shows that he was regularly commuting between London and Slough during the first four months of the year. Slough was a temporary arrangement while Dickens and Ellen looked, a search which was also recorded in the diary, for a suitable permanent home for Ellen in the developing South London suburb of Peckham 
now reachable by rail from Waterloo Station. Their eventual choice was a handsome villa called Windsor Lodge, but Ellen did not move there until two months after Dickens's return from America. The rates were first paid by him in July 1868 under the name of Francis Turnham. The name was later changed to Charles Tringham. Dickens' Dickens's commutes to Slough and Peckham were recorded in his diary for 1867, which, to his consternation, he lost that autumn in New York. It is now in the New York Public Library, where it was first investigated and its cryptic entries were first interpreted by a distinguished and scholarly actor, the late Sir Felix Aylmer, who published his findings in a book called Dickens Incognito in 1959. This diary also contained copies of the coded telegrams that show Dickens had been hoping for Ellen to join him in America at some point during his gruelling readings tour of the northeastern states. The project had to be abandoned, however, once the sensational success of and huge publicity generated by the reading tour had become clear. It would have been simply impossible for Dickens's association with Ellen to have been kept secret and this would have had very damaging consequences for both of them. As it was, the tour, involving over 70 readings in four and a half months, was a colossal success. It yielded Dickens a profit of no less than £20,000. It would have been nearly twice as much if he'd not insisted on converting all his dollars into gold. As on his 1842 visit to America, he was received by the president, in this case, it was Lincoln's successor, Andrew Johnson, a Democrat who was embroiled in party strife and who was to escape impeachment by one Senate vote. Dickens's gruelling tour in harsh winter conditions took him as far north as Portland, Maine, and as far west as Buffalo. Unsurprisingly, it had a very deleterious effect upon his health, especially as regards his feet, and he blamed this on what he referred to as overwalking in deep snow. Back in England, he settled Ellen into Windsor Lodge and was soon making plans for a six-month farewell reading tour of England, Scotland and Ireland. He introduced into his repertoire a new and highly sensational reading, that of The Savage Murder of Nancy by Bill Sykes. This had an electric effect upon his audiences. Ladies fainting and having to be carried out stiff as a board were apparently not uncommon and always left Dickens himself temporarily prostrate. After six months touring with Sykes and Nancy regularly on the programme, he was too ill to continue and the tour had to be abruptly terminated. He recovered enough, however, to give a series of 12 farewell readings in London in the first three months of 1870. And thereafter he was, as he told his very last audience, to vanish from these garish lights forevermore. He began a new novel, The Mystery of Edwin Drood, to be published in 12 monthly numbers instead of the traditional 20. This was perhaps a sign that he and his publishers no longer felt it prudent, given his health problems, to commit themselves to the traditional 20 monthly parts. As it was, he did die of a stroke 
just halfway through the serialization of Drood, living his readers struggling to this day to, to solve the mystery as best they can. He died at Gads Hill on the 9th of June, five years to the day since the Staplehurst accident. He'd been writing all day and fell ill just after sitting down to dinner with Georgina. A local legend, until recently still current in Peckham, apparently, provides a more sensational death story. According to this, Dickens died while visiting Ellen and his corpse was then ferried by her in a closed cab for 26 miles to Gads Hill. There, Georgina, having been alerted to the macabre situation by telegraph, was able to stage a more appropriate death scene for the, for the nation's beloved, best-loved author. Dickens's will reads in places almost like a novel. It has a sensational opening in the form of a thousand-pound bequest, equivalent in today's money to approximately 120,000 pounds, to a mysterious Miss Ellen Lawless Turnan, late of Houghton Place, Ampthill Square, in the county of Middlesex. Six years later, no one seems to have made any connection with Dickens when a Miss Ellen Lawless Turnan married a young clergyman called George Wharton Robinson, by whom she was to have two children. Dickens's will has a heroine figure in Georgina Hogarth, described as the best and truest friend man ever had. Catherine, though no villain, seems somehow to be to blame for the fact that she has, since their separation, received from Dickens an annual income of £600, while, as he records, all the great charges of a numerous and expensive family have devolved entirely on myself. His detailed instructions for a quiet and very private funeral did not specify any location, which, perhaps intentionally, left it open for the Dean of Westminster to intervene, proposing that such a ceremony could be held even in the Abbey. The family agreed, and the event duly took place very early one morning before the Abbey opened to the public, and with only the number of mourners, 13, specified in the will in attendance. This novel of a will has an ironic kind of epilogue too, in that Dickens, who had a horror of statues, explicitly stipulates in it that he should never, ever be made the subject of any monument whatever. This has been cheerfully ignored by his admirers over the years, most recently and most ironically in his birthplace, Portsmouth. Dickens' will states, I rest my claims to the remembrance of my countrymen solely upon my published works. Given these words, we can, I think, feel pretty sure that the one pictorial memento of himself of which Dickens would have approved is Luke Files's famous painting of his study at Gads Hill, which was engraved for publication in the 1870 Christmas number of the graphic under the title of The Empty Chair. Professor Slater, thank you very much for that very interesting talk. Um, it's provoked some questions from the online audience, which I hope that um, you won't mind if I, if I address to you. Um, one of our audience members has asked, do you think that Dickens should have curtailed his public readings at an earlier stage 
and concentrated on writing more novels, possibly thereby extending his lifespan. Yes, I, I think that would have been wonderful that we might have had known what the end of the mystery of Edwin Drood was and perhaps had a, another novel. But I think Dickens, it was like some tremendously strong drug or something. I mean, it, it was this direct contact with his audience, with his readers, uh, which he could not give up, I think. Mm. Or in the end, he had to give up, but just a few months before he died. Um, another question on the public readings. Why do you think Dickens, you may have just answered this actually, why do you think Dickens decided to give public readings as his books were already reaching such an enormous audience? Was it this performance element? Oh, I'm sure it was, yes, yes. He, he wanted to get as close to his readers as he possibly could and, and to actually read his own books to them physically there uh, was an intoxicating experience, I think, for him. And, uh, you know... How, how much closer could he get mm. <laughs> to his readers? Um. Do you know, um, the time of Dickens' public readings are broadly coincident with the um, arrival of audio recording. Are there any recordings of him reading his own works? No, alas. Um, he died just before the earliest recordings could be made. Uh, I think we have a very early recording of Tennyson, who lived mm. quite a long time after Dickens, Tennyson reading The Charge of the Light Brigade. And that, I think, is sort of early 1870s. But Dickens died just too... Just a bit too soon. A bit too bit soon, too yes. Okay. Um, you've noted that Dickens' death on the anniversary was on the anniversary of the Staplehurst rail crash, and one of the audience members is wondering if this is just a coincidence, or do you think it preyed upon his mind? Oh, I think it did prey upon his mind, and of course, after 1865, he, he did an enormous amount of railway travelling uh, on the readings tours, uh, and he, he was always very, very nervous uh, on, on trains. Uh, he said he felt you know, when the train was going at all fast, that the carriage was sort of tipping over on one side. Uh, so all this uh, huge amount of railway travel that he, he did uh, after um, 1865 um, took its toll on him, I think, yes. I think, is there, a, is there an Uncommercial Traveller article on um, railway travel? Oh, yes, there are several. Yeah. There. He yeah. wrote a lot about the, the railways, yes. Um, what do you think was behind Dickens' refusal to meet Queen Victoria on various occasions and then their actual meeting just shortly before his death? Well, the first occasion was when he had been acting uh, in a farce um, and also in a melodrama uh, to, to help raise money for charity and the Queen and Prince Albert had come uh, to it wasn't in a public theatre; it was in a, 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 a special hall, you know. And the uh, and the Queen came, um, and uh, there was a melodrama performed, the Frozen Deep, and then a farce afterwards, in which Dickens uh, played a, a very farcical old gent, you see. Um, and, um, and the Queen uh, was so pleased that she sent a message uh, backstage saying that she would like to see Dickens, um, to congratulate him. And he refused to go um, 
because he was still in his fast dress and he wasn't going to present himself before the Queen in a ridiculous costume. And so she sent another message back saying the costume can't be that ridiculous. Um, but he still insisted mm. not to do it. So uh, he didn't. Uh, he refused to meet her um, or to go and be presented to her. Uh, but in the last year of his life, I think it was, or very, very, uh, 1869, 70, something like that, uh, he did have a private audience with the Queen, um, and uh, uh, he was by this time suffering terribly from gout uh, and, and, and uh, difficulty standing, but for the whole hour he stood, <laughs> and <clears throat> to make him feel more comfortable, she stood also, but she did lean on, on the back of a, 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 a settee or couch, you see. <laughs> And what they talked about, apparently, was the difficulty of getting servants these days and the price of butcher's meat. <laughs> Fantastic. That's what one would speak with the Queen about. That, That's right. Yes. You, you think the greatest novelist <laughs> in, in, of the time talking to the Queen, and that's what they talked about. <laughs> um, Dickens' last three completed novels are set, respectively, during a period before he was born and then the period of his childhood and roughly the present day. Do you think that from 1858 onwards, he was trying to, in a way, encompass his entire existence? It's quite a broad question. Gosh, it's an interesting question, mm. isn't it? Yes. Yes, I think the short answer might be yes. I hadn't really thought of it like that. But. Um, a couple of questions about his personal life. Uh, we know that Dickens was in a lot of pain at the end of his life. Do you think that he himself was addicted to opium? I'm thinking of John Jasper. Yes, I'm, no, I'm not sure he was addicted to it, um, but he certainly used it. Um, I think that's but I don't, difficult to say. It is I difficult to say, isn't it? Yes, I think it's yes. fair enough. I, I've never read that, that it was, he was addicted to it. But it was, he, he, he used it frequently. So um, There were a couple of questions about Catherine, um, which I think most of which you addressed in your, your lecture. Do you think that any of his later works reflect any guilt uh, regarding his treatment of Catherine? No. Mm. No. I, I, I think the way he talks about her in the will shows that, you know, he's kind of unforgiving, saying, mm. I've had to pay the expenses of all the family while she's enjoyed this income, £600 a right. year and so on. Um, it's sad, very sad. Very sad. But uh, there isn't... Um, there's this wistful thing about one of her daughters going to, uh, uh, to see her um, when Dickens was still alive and, and, uh, and Catherine asking, Do you ever, does he ever talk about me or think about me? But he never did. Mm. And the last one um, is about the funeral. Who was responsible for planning the private funeral at the Abbey, and how did it remain so private? Was there ever any consideration for Kensal Green with Mary Hogarth or, or Highgate with his daughter or parents? Or was it just the Abbey? No, I mean, uh, Dickens didn't, though he left quite elaborate instructions about his funeral, interestingly, he didn't say... Uh, where he where? wanted to be buried. Um, his daughter reported that he would like to have been buried in one or two little country churchyards in, in, in Kent. Um, <clears throat> but um, 
the family were preparing to have him buried in Rochester Cathedral because that seemed the appropriate place. Um, when the Dean of Westminster um, intervened, as it were, to say um, if, if, they, if the family would uh, approach him, you know, they would. But as Dickens had insisted that the funeral be very, very private and the, the mourners limited and so forth, um, it obviously couldn't be a big ceremonial thing, so it was arranged uh, that it should take place in Westminster Abbey uh, at seven o'clock in the morning um, before the abbey opened to the public. Oh, right. uh, so it was a very private funeral with just 13 um, mourners, including Ellen, uh, in, in attendance um, before the abbey opened to the public. Um, but then when the public came in, uh, of course, the grave was there and people began putting flowers on it and uh, coming to, to look mm -hmm. at it and uh, pay their respects, as it were, huge crowds of people. Very interesting. Well, Professor Slater, thank you very, very much for just, just a wonderful lecture. And many thanks to our audience as well for your attention and for your questions. Um, I would encourage you to join us at 6 o'clock this evening for another literature lecture when Professor John Mullen will be speaking on fiction and the supernatural. Thank you.